Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Brandon did a really good job of picking songs that actually fit with the principle of uh, some of the themes in Song of Solomon, uh, where we're going to be for the lesson. So this this might be a little bit of an unusual lesson. Um, if I asked a raise of hands, if you even read Song of Solomon before, I imagine not everybody would raise their hand. Uh, it's an unusual book. It can be a challenging book to read. So it ends up being a, a neglected book, tragically. Uh, I think Song of Solomon is actually a very, very important book of the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes is also a bit of a challenge, challenging book. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that some of the concluding lessons from that book, uh, I wish I would have known about those lessons cared about those lessons, and applied those lessons throughout my youth. Uh, I can see how that would have benefited me enormously uh, in my relationship with God and just my life in general. And Song of Solomon is the same way. Uh, I wish I would have known about the lessons in this book when I was younger growing up. Uh, I wish I would have cared about the lessons in this book, and I certainly wish I would have applied uh, the lessons in this book uh, growing up. So I hope in this lesson... To give kind of an overview of the book, equip you to maybe understand the book a little bit better, and then see the value of some of the lessons uh, that are unique to this book as well. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things about some principles related to the book to help us get there. Song of Solomon is a love story. It's extremely poetic, but it is a it is a love story, and it's primarily a love story that culminates in a marriage relationship, a very beautiful uh, marriage relationship. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 4, there's a principle here that I think is really important. It says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This idea of marriage is to be held in honor among all. Uh, that means marriage is to be viewed in a very high regard, even if you're single, divorced, widowed, no matter what circumstance it might be, we all need to be able to celebrate the beauty of what marriage is. Uh, that can be challenging, but again, marriage is to be held in honor among all. There's something uniquely beautiful about marriage that God wants everybody to be able to respect and appreciate uh, without jealousy or covetousness or any of those things or, or improper passion even towards it, being single, um, having, having self-control. Um, so marriage is to be held in honor, and I think Song of Solomon is a book that helps us hold marriage in a high regard. It equips us in that way. And then Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. So I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that um, when we were looking at Ecclesiastes, which commands young men to rejoice in their youth, uh, follow the desires of your eyes, the lust of your heart, yet know that God will bring you into judgment for these things. Uh, I mentioned that I used to think joy and enjoyment in life and God were two entirely separate things. You know, so I mentioned it, and I'll mention it again in the same way that uh, what I think can easily happen is we associate God with specific religious activities. You know, so I think about God or that I'm serving God at a Bible study, which is true. Uh, or when I go to church assemblies, I'm thinking about God, I'm serving God. When I'm praying, reading the Bible, or maybe doing something that I feel is more religiously oriented. But outside of that, 
I don't think about God. I don't think about it as a service to God. And again, two weeks ago, uh, I mentioned that that's a very imperfect, uh, really very broken view of God, uh, as every good gift, every perfect thing is from God, ultimately, and can be, uh, can be something that we associate God with. So Proverbs 5, the reason why I say all of this, God loves marriage. And have you ever thought that as you spend time with your spouse, and you just enjoy time with your spouse, that you are actually pleasing God by doing that? And that that is a religious activity, in a sense, that God literally commands couples to love their marriage, even be exhilarated in their marriage. This is God's will for marriage. Not that marriage is just a drudgery despite its challenges. Not that there's just this constant lingering tension or that things get so busy that you never spend time together or really make time to love each other or develop a friendship or protect friendship in marriage. It is God's will that marriage be something that is enjoyed and that it goes beyond just enjoyment. There's this word here that I've highlighted, exhilaration. That's what we see in Song of Solomon. We see an example of a couple who were exhilarated in their love and it's extremely beautiful. It's important to study and it's important to understand. So Song of Solomon, uh, if you'll turn there and just look at verse one, Verse 1 says, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. So for this to be called the song of songs in the Hebrew is kind of like holy, holy or most holy. For this to be called the song of songs means it is the climax of all songs. We find out in another area of scripture that Solomon composed over 1,000 songs. We have a large number of his proverbs, but we actually only have one song of a 1,000 that Solomon wrote. And here in scripture, it's called the Song of Songs. So this is the greatest song that Solomon wrote. Now, what do you think? What are some of the most common popular themes in music, movies, and theater? I would say love, romance. Those are some of the most popular, timeless themes in theater, novels, movies. And there's a reason why those things are so popular, right? And this is what Solomon wrote here in Song of Solomon. It's the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So Solomon wrote this song. Um, and it's of everything that he wrote, it's very climactic. And I want to argue why that is. It's because of the principles contained in this book. Uh, this is an extremely poetic book. So it can be challenging to read and understand because of that. It's, it's not just poetic. It is extremely poetic. Uh, and I want to give an example of how to read poetry just from some poetry not of the Bible. Um, does anyone know who Lord Byron is? Anyone heard of that? So Jim and Angel, yes. Gianna, you went to school. Yeah, Gianna knows who it is. Antoinette knows too, yeah. So, <laughs> so Lord, Lord Byron is a very famous uh, poet. He wrote a lot of very famous, beautiful poetry. Here's a quote from Lord Byron. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. And all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. Now, he could also have said, a woman in a black dress with shiny beads looked pretty when she walked by. Does one of those hit differently, maybe more powerfully than the other? So there's something about poetry that hits the heart differently. I would say even hits the mind differently. It, it, it ignites a different emotional sensory 
uh, with poetry. So that Song of Solomon, it's extremely poetic. And I want to emphasize again, extremely poetic. Uh, but it's poetic in a way that's meant to ignite something more than just cold logic. That there's something here, there's a beauty to their love and the expression of their love that's meant to ignite here than just logical thinking. There's a sensory that this is meant to ignite in the story, and it's meant to be extremely beautiful. So secondly, with biblical poetry, so firstly, that was just poetry in general. Secondly, biblical poetry. Biblical poetry invites concentrated meditation. Uh, Jason's talked a lot about how First John is organized very poetically, and, and Jason's been... Uh, talking a lot about biblical poetry whenever he's taught. And one thing he's mentioned is biblical poetry can be challenging. And that's right. Biblical poetry is challenging, but that's because it's an invitation to think deeply, to meditate on what's being said. Oftentimes in biblical poetry, there are principles in what's being said that are reserved for concentrated meditation. We're able to understand lessons and the imagery and the point with concentrated meditation. Jesus taught in parables in this way, right? When Jesus would teach parables, he would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying is, you've heard something I've taught, and if you're not going to concentrate on it, meditate on it, and seek more understanding from him, then what you're going to come away with is going to be very shallow. So I think sometimes Song of Solomon can seem very confusing because it's very, very poetic, but we just don't spend the time really meditating on the imagery and trying to understand it. So I want to give you an overview of the book. We're not going to be able to go over this in detail, but I want to just kind of point through the story and point out some things about the story that hopefully can help you understand what's going on in the story. Uh, but here's how it organized the book, and I'm pretty confident in this organization here. Uh, chapter 1, 1 through 4, is kind of an introduction to the characters in the context. Uh, my opinion, and I think there is some wiggle room for some interpretation of what's going on in some sections, my personal interpretation of verses 2 through 4 is it's almost speaking from the conclusion of the book and where the couple ends up, and then verse 5 then really picks up from the beginning. And I think there's some language in 2 through 4 that indicates that the initial statements are from the conclusion of their married relationship, and then verse 5 backpedals and starts further back. So chapters 1 through 2 is this couple, this boy and girl, in their courting dating relationship. Chapter 3 through chapter 5, verse 1, is their wedding. And I think there's some very clear language in chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4 to indicate this. Very, very clear language. And then chapter 5 through 7 has their marriage relationship. And there are some extremely helpful principles in 5 through 7 with their marriage relationship. And then what we read in the scripture reading is reflections at the end of the book, much like Ecclesiastes, where Ecclesiastes at the very end has some concluding reflections to make, summarizing the book. Song of Solomon is the exact same way. Uh, ironically, if you just really quickly look over there again at verse 8, so Ecclesiastes and saying, rejoice young man in your youth as a conclusion. So he's like, hey, you young person, get this early. Song of Solomon 8 verse 8. Who is this conclusively about? We have a little sister. And I know this is kind of weird language, but it's, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? I think Song of Solomon is primarily a book for young girls. As Ecclesiastes ends with an exhortation to young men, Song of Solomon ends with an exhortation to young girls. 
Uh, I think there tends to be a draw that romantic literature and romantic stories have to women in particular. And so I think, again, keeping that in mind helps enhance uh, the book and its points. So with that, we'll kind of dig in just a little bit. Again, this is going to be speeding through a little bit. And so do your best to just kind of look at the text and, and listen uh, as we go through this a little bit. But I do want to read chapter 1, 1 through 4. And we're going to start by reading the introduction and introducing the characters in the context. So 1, 1 through 4 again. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance, and your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So, first of all, uh, you can tell that this is a couple who are very infatuated with each other. I mean, it's obvious, even from the onset in verse 2. Uh, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. This is a couple who are truly exhilarated with each other. You also get the, all the characters of the story here, I believe. So you can make out who's speaking, or at least what gender is speaking. It's a female. And who is she talking to? Well, she's obviously talking about her lover. And then at the end of verse 4, uh, some translations, uh, Brandon mentioned this, the New King James, the ESV, do a pretty good job of inserting translator guesses. They are not inspired. They're translator guesses of who's speaking. I think they do a really good job. So the ESV will say he, she, he, she, other. Uh, the New King James will say uh, the beloved, the Shulamite, the beloved, the Shulamite. The girl is referred to as a Shulamite later in the book. But I believe there's three characters in the book. There's a girl, there's a boy, and there's an audience. So at the end of verse 4, we will rejoice in you and be glad. Who is speaking? Well, it's apparent from the text itself. It's a we. That audience will be directly referred to multiple times and will speak into the story multiple times. But besides that, you have a boy and a girl and an audience. Uh, the book is really simple when you understand it that way. It's really obvious when you're reading who's talking. Is it a woman who's talking? Well, then it's the girl. Is it a boy who's talking? Well, then it's the lover man. And it's, it's simply as simple as that. It's not more complicated than that. There's some interpretations of Song of Solomon that there are three people besides the audience in the book, the lovers and Solomon. In that interpretation of the book, and I don't mean to confuse you, but it's an interpretation that I don't agree with. Uh, it inserts Solomon as a uh, kind of gross, uh, flirtatious individual in the book who's trying to woo the young girl to him and the interpretation is that she ultimately rejects his advances and chooses uh, the boy instead. Uh, I think that makes the book way more confusing. And I think there's a lot of language in the book that makes that impossible. Uh, because, uh, well, we'll point it out, especially with the marriage scene. So uh, in chapter 3, there's some references to Solomon, but I think they are poetic references. Look at verse four, Look at 4. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. She refers to his lover as a king. But I'll say again, I don't think it's Solomon literally. I think this is like theater 
where Solomon, for the sake of this story, has these characters, almost as if you're reading a play uh, with parts. In fact, Eve and I, this week, we read Song of Solomon together. She read for the woman, I read for the man. Uh, It was very interesting reading it that way. But suffice it to say, the king has brought me into his chambers. How do we make sense of that? Uh, In 5 through 7 of this chapter, we find out that these are actually two very simple people. In verse 6, she mentions that she's a vineyard keeper for her family and that her brothers were angry at her and she had to take care of other people's vineyards, but she didn't take care of her own, referring to her body there. And then verse 7, she asks where he pastures his flock, seemingly referencing he's just a simple shepherd boy. So again, going back to verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers. How do we make sense of that if this isn't literally King Solomon as the male figure of this book? Here's how I make sense of this, and I think this does make a lot of sense poetically. I'm going to embarrass Victoria. So it was her birthday this week. Don't worry, it's a good way. Uh, Victoria made a post on her Facebook about her birthday, and she said that Paul treated her like a queen. I think that's the point of Song of Solomon, is that the way that the woman and man see each other is so poetically extreme. To her, he's a king. To him, she's a queen. She's a princess's daughter, as he says later in the book. I think these are two very simple people. It's just an ordinary girl. It's an ordinary boy. But what makes them special isn't their wealth. It isn't the fact that they're necessarily very wise or very powerful or politically very important. What makes this couple special in the book is how extreme their love is. That's what makes them special. It makes it special that they love each other in a way that is exhilarating. I'll say it again. She sees him like a king. He sees her like a queen. But it's poetic. It's poetically very extreme. So chapters one and two. Like I said, we're going to read verses five through seven and kind of introduce the characters a little bit more. But I want to tell you something as well with the nature of this book is the girl is the main character. Uh, It can be easy to miss as you're reading it on your own. But when Eve and I Uh, had it where she would read for the female and I would read for the male, Uh, I spoke very little. So the girl is the main character. She speaks the most, and it's nearly as if everything in the book is actually from her perspective, ultimately. She starts the book, and actually in chapter 8, she ends the book. So she's speaking in the first person at the beginning, and the book concludes she's speaking in the first person. Verse 5 is the girl. I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry at me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So again, just to reemphasize in verse 5, you know, she doesn't see herself as being most beautiful among women. When she says, I am black but lovely, And then verse 6, the sun has burned me. Uh, What she's really saying is she's been outside a lot and not because she's been trying to like sunbathe and get a beautiful tan. It's because she's been working outside in her family's vineyards. So she has a very modest opinion of herself, but we'll see that through the book, the man has an incredibly, again, poetically extreme view of her. Verse 7 mentions again that the man is simply a shepherd boy. There's nothing very special about that. He isn't somebody very important. But again, what will make these these two individuals extremely special 
is the nature of their love. Go back to the end of verse 4. When it says again, we will rejoice in you and be glad, we will extol your love more than wine, this audience celebrates the love between this man and this woman. They extol them, they celebrate it, and I think one of the things in this book that is very healthy is not to read this and think, oh, I wish my husband would treat me more like this, or oh, I wish my wife would treat me more like this. I think the first application is read about this love, celebrate this love, and just enjoy what this book has to say about this couple. And then we can pull out good principles from there. So in verse 8, they spend time together. And in verse uh, 13, she mentions, My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my, my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Just very poetically emphasizing she loves being around him. When she's away from him, she's thinking about him, and it's, it's pleasant thoughts, and it's, it's all just exhilarating and enjoyable. Verse 15, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. She responds, How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses, seemingly building the relationship and the strength of that relationship. Verse 1 of chapter 2 now, the girl still speaking. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. Verse 2, the boy, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So they, they continue to emphasize their admiration of each other, their adoration of each other. But look at verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not awaken or arouse my love, or that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. This verse is repeated three times in this book. It's going to be repeated again in chapter 3, verse 5. And once the book gets to its conclusion, as there are reflections, it will be repeated again in chapter 8, verse 4. Where it said, again, twice in the book, is in their dating relationship. So even though I've categorized chapter 3 as their wedding, really their wedding scene starts in chapter 3, verse 6. But chapter 3, verse 5, this emphasis on restraint is given. The reason why I point this out, in their courting relationship, their dating relationship, they love each other. They adore each other. But based on what we will read after their wedding time, there is an intensive self-control in what they're saying to each other. So they are admiring each other's appearance. You know, 115, he acknowledges how beautiful she is. But in my Bible, that's four lines. He is going to spend the entirety of chapter four admiring her appearance post-wedding. So compared to what we see after their wedding scene, there is a great deal of self-control here. Same on her part. There are boundaries to their dating relationship. There is an effort in chapter 2, verse 7. It's an acknowledgement that there are boundaries in this relationship at this point. They are being careful not to stir up or awaken love until it can please. So they're acknowledging that there is something special to be reserved until the marriage time, which is what we see in the book. So getting into the wedding scene. In chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through, one through 5, uh, the female of the story seemingly has a dream where she's seeking her man, she can't find him, 
And then in verse 4, scarcely had I left him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him, would not let him go, until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. And we get again in verse 5, this emphasis on self-control, still boundaries. Verses 6 through 11 is an extremely extravagant wedding scene, uh, so extravagant that it can actually seem very confusing what this is even talking about. I'll go ahead and read this. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, experts in war. Each man has a sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timbers of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. So really quick, I think when this is referred to as Solomon, again, this is a very poetic way of referring to the husband, a very poetically extreme way. I want to illustrate it like this. So I believe this is a wedding scene in the book, but it's just, again, extremely poetic. Uh, A number of years ago, when I was living in Alabama, uh, I flew to Minnesota to go to a friend of mine's wedding. And when I went to the wedding, uh, on the last minute, like right before their wedding, uh, my friend, his name is Sam, Sam came up to me and said, hey, Brian, can you emcee our wedding? And I was like, okay, uh, sure. You know, I didn't go to any rehearsal or anything, and I was just showing up to attend. But he's like, you've got a loud voice, so it'd be nice if you would do this for us. So I agreed to do it. And I had no idea what to do. Uh, I depended on everyone else to kind of tell me what to do, and and it it really was kind of a mess. Uh, I felt really embarrassed that I seemed to make a mess of things and made things very awkward. It felt awkward. Uh, So through the wedding, just it seemed like a lot of things went wrong because of asking me to do that. And I noticed through the wedding that Sam and his fiance who got married didn't notice a thing. You know, it's like their faces were red with joy. They were laughing. It's like they were in a different reality than everybody else. And he talked to me long after the fact on a totally different trip to Minnesota. He said, oh, the wedding was so perfect. You did such a good job. You did perfectly as the MC." And I was like, I think we attended different weddings because my perspective is, It was completely awkward. I made lots of mistakes, and the tension in some of those moments was something I could feel. Uh, But their perspective was was totally different. To them, everything was perfect. I mean, again, it's like they were on cloud nine on their wedding day. Chapter 3, 6 through 11, I think that's exactly what this is, is it's like the wedding day and just the nature of it is so, it seems so lavish, so extreme, because no matter who you are, there's just something so exhilarating about the time you get to marry the person you love, especially when you have saved up so much in terms of restrained passion for that time. Chapter four. Uh, There's a lot of language in chapter four to indicate, again, we've moved into a different phase of the relationship. I want to point out some things here very briefly before reading some. Look at verse eight of chapter four. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. First time that word's been used in the book so far. New King James will say, my spouse. Verse 9, you have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. 
How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices? Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, kelmanis, uh, and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing with Lebanon. And I believe verse 16 is either the narration, the audience or the girl. Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And I think here we have a very poetic Um, very pure way of describing their sexual union. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it continues, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have drunk, or I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then here we have a narration insertion, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. So again, I think you have some very clear language indicating the transition of their relationship and even language indicating the sexual union of their relationship very in a very pure way, a very poetic way, but I think still when you think about the context, uh, very clear. Uh, I'll go back to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 and not read it, but there you have the man describing his wife and her body in very poetic detail. There's some things to say about this. Number one, He has saved this for their marriage. So I think it's that he's held these thoughts back. He's guarded himself from these thoughts before marriage, and now he's able to freely embrace it and enjoy it. Secondly, when he sees her, it's it's very beautiful and poetic. You know, her appearance inspires him. It awakens him from, from head to toe. Every aspect of her is so beautiful. And I think there's a beauty to considering his view towards her in that way. Some of it can sound kind of funny when we read it. Uh, The language is is strange. He describes her eyes like doves, her hair like goats coming down from the mountains. Other things, if you're to literally think about it, seem silly. I want you to think about this, though. Eva, Eva shared this with me this week. Imagine someone tried to compliment you. Or imagine you tried to compliment someone else, and it was something very meaningful to you, something that you really thought deeply about. And when you gave them the compliment, they laughed at you. How would that make you feel? So there's some aspects of this that I know you kind of have to get past the humorousness of it. But I do want you to think, was this written to be humorous? Was that the intention of why it was written? I would say no. So although you may have to get past, like, ah, you know, this language is kind of funny, I would really suggest to you, read it seriously. Uh, Yes, to visualize it may be funny, but I think there are principles that he's conveying with these images that are meant to be very, very poetically beautiful and very inspiring. So I I urge you, uh, take, take the language seriously and think about the intention for why it was written. Chapter 5 through 7 is their, their marriage relationship, really starting in chapter 5, verse 2. Something worth noticing is it seems like in chapter 5, 2 through 8, there's some kind of marital problem. And again, it's, it's veiled within very poetic language. But by the end of verse 8, they've separated. And I don't mean like divorce separated. 
but she seemingly kind of pushed him away in some way. There's some tension in the relationship. She goes looking for him, and in verse 9, the narration, the, these, uh, the audience says, What kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? Verse 10 through 16, it is the only time in the Song of Solomon, the only time, where she describes him in poetic detail. You know, I think it's no accident that when descriptions are given in majority, it's the man to the woman. But here's the only time where she remembers him and why she loves him, why she's attracted to him. General point from this that I think is really important and I want to bring up. I think there's a solution here to marriage problems that is very good and uh, very generally applicable. Um, I want to illustrate this with Eva in a way that would embarrass her if she was here. I told her I would use this illustration, though, and she t- you know, implied I could give this illustration. <laughs> but Eva and I, like any married couple, deal with tension in our relationship at times. Usually I'm the instigator of that tension and, and cause problems in our relationship. And when we first got married, Eva struggled with ignoring me when we had tension, uh, not wanting to be around me, which I don't blame her for that. Uh, But I think what we learn in Song of Solomon here is if the woman pursues her spouse through tension and remembers why she loves him so much, problems can be resolved and reconciled in such healthy ways. So that wasn't the end of the illustration with Eva. She has learned now, and it's something that I experience constantly because, again, you know, we suffer tension in our relationship. I cause problems fairly frequently, unfortunately. What I've noticed and what I've experienced the benefit of is Eva has learned the discipline that whenever we have tension, she pursues me through it. She never gives me the cold shoulder. She never ignores me when it's hard. What Eva has learned to do, she relentlessly communicates. She relentlessly works in her mind to remember how much she loves me, even when emotionally her mind is saying, Brian's the enemy, Brian's the enemy, Brian's the enemy. And her mind does that. She relentlessly pursues her love for me through tension. She relentlessly pursues closeness with me through tension. She relentlessly tries to seek communication with me through tension. And I have been amazed how many problems can be so much more easily solved through that kind of attitude. Just by Eva applying that on her part makes it so much easier for me to respond to her and for us to reconcile and become closer through it. So chapter six, she comes back to her beloved in verse two, they reunite. And verse four, he has not given her the cold shoulder. She doesn't come back to him and he's not like, oh, it's you now, is it? No, he's ready to admire her. They reunite. Their relationship is stronger than than before. And in verse eight, there are, this is chapter six, verse eight, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. Chapter seven, one through nine, he continues to praise her. Again, it just elevates and escalates. It doesn't stop in the marriage and it doesn't stop when they have marriage problems. Everything works to only further their closeness and their admiration for one another. 7.10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. There is security. She is confident that he is only attracted to her and there is a clear mutual belonging. Verse 11, 
Come, my beloved, let us go out into the, into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. It is just never ending with these two. Uh, I imagine it would almost be kind of gross to be around them. You know, it's like they just can't get, get enough of each other. But that's, it's good. This is a story where these two are an example of being endlessly exhilarated in their love for one another. It only grows, it only flourishes, and it never ends. Chapter 8, verse 13 and 14 ends this way. After a series of reflections and uh, lessons, uh, there's the female seemingly talking about their relationship. And verse 13, 14, Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening to your voice. Let me hear it. Hurry, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. They just enjoy each other. And that's where the book ends. It's this endless exhilaration and enjoyment. And that leads us to some brief reflections. I know that took a while to outline the, the, the book. So I'll try to make these reflections somewhat brief. Chapter 8 begins a section of the book where it really reflects on the story at large and what can we learn from this? Well, verse 4 through 7, and that's going to relate to this first point here. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Beneath the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you, there she was in labor and gave you birth. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, they would be utterly despised. Romantic passion is one of life's most powerful forces. And there is a need to learn to respect that power and navigate it. Just because love is this powerful, dangerous force does not mean it's bad. Uh, even he brings up, or the book brings up, you know, fire. Fire is not a bad thing, but it's certainly a dangerous thing. But back to some of the illustrations here, even before that, in verse 6. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. This is said similarly of wisdom in general in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3. And the idea is this is something that you need to be careful to never forget. So Song of Solomon teaches principles that it's like we're to put it as a seal on our heart, like a tattoo on our arm. We're to always remember this, always remember that love is something that is so fierce and so powerful. So there's this constant need to remember that this force must be respected. It's as strong as death. Has anyone conquered death except Jesus? It is an inescapable force. It's a force that we cannot conquer on our own. We can only be conquered by death. Death is an extremely powerful force. It's a reality that must be handled carefully. In Ecclesiastes, when it considers the reality of death, thinking about death in a healthy way should change the way we live our life. 
Thinking about the power of romantic passion should change the way we live our life. Fire, again, is something very dangerous. It says in verse 6, you know, fire can get out of control very quickly. Fire can, you know, a little spark can turn into a forest fire. So fire has to be handled with great care and respect. It's not that it's bad. It's that you have to respect it. Love and passion that is romantic can easily get out of control. How easily can teenagers get out of control with their feelings? How easily can someone young or someone even old, you know, allow things to escalate too far? When I was younger, uh, about when I was like 21, 22, um, I was studying a lot of doctrinal things, and there was a website where someone, a preacher that I trust, had an open question answer for him. So like anybody could ask him a question, he would do his best to answer from the Bible. Uh, this got really popular, and people would just constantly ask him questions from all over the world, and again, it just became very overwhelming for him. But I noticed as I would kind of keep track of this, the most common question he would get were anonymous people saying, I'm a Christian, I'm in a relationship, and I'm not married, and my girlfriend and I have started having sex. What do we do now? And it was amazing how constantly he would get this question. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm in a relationship, we're having sex, we didn't mean to, now we don't know what to do and we're in a panic. Love can get out of control so quickly, and from a young age, it has to be instilled in a good way to understand and respect the power of romantic passion. Um, well, really quick, I want to emphasize again before going to this next point, 8 verse 4. This is the exhortation of the book that is repeated like a drumbeat. Do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Boundaries must be valued. Go back to chapter 4 verse 12. Chapter 4 verse 12. The man in this story admires and respects that his beloved has guarded herself. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a spring sealed up. He didn't try to push her boundaries. He respected and admired her boundaries. Girls need to be taught to respect a man who respects her boundaries. To me, if a young guy is pushing the sexual boundaries of a girl, that's it. End of story, period. He should, she should not be fooling around with a guy who does not respect sexual boundaries in youth. He respects that. He admires that. He loves that about her. In marriage, it is critical to continue to affirm attraction, build attraction, and protect attraction. Again, what is God's will for marriage? That we just kind of become settled and be bored and not be exhilarated with each other? That's, that's not God's will. It is God's will that we just be infatuated with our spouses. But there is a need to learn to protect attraction. These are things that the world wants to destroy. The world wants to destroy our view of the goodness of romantic passion and see it only as this bad thing that is only bad in the way the world portrays it. And the world wants to destroy our marriages, make husbands look at other women and have desire for other women, for women to long for maybe the company of other men who would, they feel, potentially, treat them a way they want to be treated and fantasize about another relationship. It is God's will that there be something exclusive about marriage. It's so easy to go into autopilot in marriage, and what you see in the Song of Solomon is not a relationship going into autopilot. He adores her six times in this book. 
chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 15, 2, 2, 4, 1 through 15, 6, 4 through 10, 7, 1 through 9. And the majority of this is after marriage. The majority of it is after a marital problem. It is, it is essential and critical that a husband affirm his attraction for his wife, that he affirm it, cultivate it, and protect it. She has confidence in this book of her belonging to him. Three times in the book, she affirms, I am his, he is mine. She's the only one who says that. The husband doesn't affirm this, except by affirming his attraction for her. Parents must equip their girls to understand the value of protecting their sexuality and their body. Verse 8. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Notice this in verse 9. If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. And then seemingly the female of the story, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers, and I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. The woman in this story in verse 10 protected her body and her sexuality, and that was respected. It is incumbent upon parents to have uncomfortable conversations with your children about sexuality. I want to ask a question about this. Does God biblically shy away from the subject of sexuality? Or does God in Genesis confront us fairly brutally with the nature of sexuality in the world and sexual abuse? Uh, God confronts us with this. This is not a subject that God shies away from. And so do you. Is that a subject that you shy away from? This is something that it is so critical that we don't let the world own this conversation. If we don't have those kinds of conversations, the world certainly will. And the world is going to have your children think about those things in a way that will cultivate guilt, shame, and secrecy, period. That's where I was when I was younger, which is why I wish I would have known of this book and applied this book. It damaged me so deeply for such a long time to think about sexuality in a way that was secretive and shameful and kept away from God. We have got to talk about uncomfortable things, but we have to show them in their good context. Song of Solomon isn't a book just saying, don't be like the world, don't look at the world, don't let the world define it for you. Instead, it gives a love with no ceiling, showing you here's how far good love can be taken. Romantic love and sexuality are not bad, but they certainly need to be understood in their proper context to be properly enjoyed. And that's the lesson for this morning. I appreciate your patience. I know that took a good minute to overview a book and give points of application from it. So I appreciate your patience very much. But I hope this has equipped you at least to understand that this is a very unique book with really important lessons within it that need to be taught, especially to the youth. What I'd like to do concluding this lesson is say a prayer about these things, and especially for the parents of young girls in this congregation, if you'll pray with me.